0: We're in lesson uh, book number five, if everybody has a book. But we'll be in book five, and we're going to begin with lesson number 108. I took a look at that lesson, and I said, oh, no, there ain't no way I'm going to get through that whole lesson in one study Bible time. So it's going to be a two-part series. Is that anything new? No, nothing new at all. So this is going to be part one of Life is a Stewardship. And this morning, we're going to be looking, if you want to open up your Bibles, which I hope you want to do, Because that's what we're all about, studying the Bible. So open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 18 this morning. And even for me to cover that much material, I'm going to have to really speak fast. What we think about God, what we think about God will determine how we think about all other situations in life. Have you ever stopped to think about that? It's true. It will determine how we think about good and evil. It will determine what we think about morality, what we think about religion, religions, other people. It will determine what we think about purpose. Purpose, why are we here? Um, it will help us determine what we think about this as social issues, what we think about some of the gray issues that the world would say aren't black or white, but we have to talk about, you know, they're gray, uh, such as um, uh, gay marriages, what we think about abortion, social, different social issues. It will determine what we think about the nuclear issue, the environmental crisis, the supposed environmental crisis, what we think about economics, uh, politics, and government, and you give me any other subject, and it will determine how we think about that subject. What we think about God determines what we think about all other situations of life. And this brings with it another dilemma. Because in our 21st century theological cafeteria, many people have an a la carte concept of God. They piece together all kinds of various ideas about God from different sources, gravitating to those ideas of him that are most appealing. This is usually the case. They'll gravitate to those ideas about God that are most appealing to their own self-centered lusts and their own self-centered desires. True understanding of God comes from the only book that God ever authored. And what is that book? I hope you have it right now in your lap. It is called the Word of God because it is the Word of God. It's God's written Word. True knowledge of the true God also comes not only from the written Word, but it comes from Jesus Christ, who is the living Word of God, God's eternal Son. His life and his ministry, all of his words and works, are recorded for us in only one reliable place. And where is that? Again, the living word's life is recorded for us in the written word. Now, during his public ministry of three and a half years, the Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God, repeatedly sought... To scrape away the residue of misinformation and misunderstanding that obstructed people's view of the true God, His Father, and this was because they had they had so much misinformation and misunderstanding. Primarily, that was due to the wrong, often selfishly motivated, interpretation, interpretations. Of scripture by Israel's religious rulers the scribes and the Pharisees and the rabbis and the Sadducees etc who prided themselves on knowing God that was what they really thought they were all about was knowing God Um, but Jesus came along and told them they didn't know God they didn't really know God at all did they and their ignorance of God was best evidenced by their response to God's son how did they respond to God's son God's Son came to reveal God to mankind. How did they respond to him? Well, we know they hated him without a cause. They hated him. They were jealous of him. They envied him. They hated him. They blasphemed him. And what did they eventually wind up doing? They murdered him. Their ignorance of God was also evidenced in their treatment of other people, their fellow man. What are we to do? What are the two great commands? We are to love the Lord our God with all our soul, all our heart, all our mind, all our strength. And we're to love our fellow man, our neighbor as ourselves. Well, they didn't evidence, evidence the uh, vertical relationship with God at all. And they certainly also did not evidence the, the um, horizontal relationship with their fellow man. What did they think of women? We saw that many times. Women were less than dogs in their eyes. And uh, what did they think of uh, Gentiles? Again, dogs, Samaritans, they hated them. Uh, What did they even think of their own fellow common Jews? They looked down their long, pious noses at them, didn't they? And we saw this many times. Even, you know, handicapped people, they thought they were just reaping what they had sown, what they deserved from a previous life or something. But anyway, their treatment of their fellow man also evidenced that they did not know God. They were the sheep who were supposed to be lovingly, sacrificially shepherding their flock, but they didn't a right knowledge of the true God is evident in and through us when we imitate his attitude and his response toward people and this was what the Lord Jesus had sought to teach you know through his own ministry his own example did he love people? did he care about people? did he have compassion for people? for every kind of people women gentiles samaritans handicapped people of course he did so he led by his example And um, we saw this at the uh, close of our study. When we closed this study back in May, we saw his example, or we saw him, we heard him teach about God's attitude toward sinners in the three parables of Luke 15. Now, that's what we last talked about. Last time we were together were those three parables, the parables of the lost sheep The lost coin and the prodigal son. And we had learned that the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, had been murmuring. Was that anything new? Remember 15, let's see, where is it? 15, verse 2. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. They were all bent out of shape because Jesus always had open arms of reception toward sinners, and he even had the audacity to eat with them. So they were murmuring. So in what has become a famous trilogy of parables addressed directly to the Pharisees and the scribes, the Lord put a mirror before them. What is the word of God for us? It's a mirror we look into, see ourselves reflected there, don't we? And uh, we make adjustments, so we hopefully make adjustments so that we're more like Christ. But he put a mirror before them with these parables and he opened a window in heaven to show them that they knew far less about God and even about themselves than they ever, ever would have thought. He showed them that a person does not know God if he doesn't know what grieves God and what brings God joy. That's how we can tell if we know God. Do we know what grieves the heart of God? Do we know what makes God joyful? Well, remember those parables? Remember how he grieves for the lost? And how he has over the top rejoicing whenever that which is lost is found. We looked at that in those three parables. The parables didn't so much tell us about a lost sheep as about a seeking shepherd, right? Who is our seeking shepherd? Who came to seek and to, to save and to seek that which was lost? The Lord Jesus Christ it didn't tell us so much about a lost coin as about a searching woman. And we talked about how she was sort of a picture and type of the Holy Spirit. The seeking shepherd was a picture of Jesus. The searching woman was a picture of the Holy Spirit. And then what did we have? It wasn't so much a parable about a lost son. It was really a parable about two lost sons. As much as it was about a loving father. And who did the loving father in the parable of the prodigal son represent? God the Father. So we had God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the whole, um, God the Father. So it, this spoke about those three parables in Luke 15 told us about God's true attitude towards sinners, which happened to be the very opposite from the attitude of the religious rulers towards sinners. And where did we have their attitude towards sinners displayed? In the elder brother of the prodigal remember you're all looking kind of blank go like this yes you remember <laughs> he was they were pictured there's the mirror they were looking at themselves when they saw the elder brother and his attitude toward his father's forgiveness of the younger son and um, and they probably identified they were identifying with him they understood why he wasn't happy that his father was having this uh, over-the-top joyful party for that sinful wasteful younger son of his well in the parable of the prodigal and his older brother the Lord had described two similar but different philosophies of life now before he repented the younger brother the one we all call the prodigal had wasted his life he had wasted his life he had taken his father's inheritance early he had taken his inheritance early along with all of his privileged opportunities you know his he had a good spiritual upbringing he probably he came from a very wealthy family he probably was well educated he had a high social status lots of wealth lots lots of goods he had taken his inheritance and all of his opportunities and what did he do with them wasted them totally wasted them on riotous living Now, so he's an example of a wasted life. His older brother, however, really did no better because he spent his life. He spent his life in external service that was really full of rebellious inward drudgery. Oh yeah, he stayed at home and he worked for his father, but he was rebelling inside, wasn't he? He worked, but he, you know, it was just all external righteousness because he really didn't care for the Father. If you think about it, people everywhere are examples of one of these two wrong ways of living. Either wasting, how many people can you look at, you know, just turn on television or or think about the Hollywood crowd or even think about a lot of people you know. How many people are busy wasting their lives? With, with just totally carefree, ungodly lifestyles. You know, not even caring about what's going to happen when they die at all. Just wasting their lives on, on little things that don't count one bit for eternity. Or how many people do you know who are spending their lives in some kind of a uh, works-oriented religion? Um, religious system that is drudgingly difficult. I mean, there's millions of people on this planet, billions of people who are spending their lives trying to, what, work their way to heaven. And they're going through all kinds of do's and don'ts and their yoke isn't easy and their burden isn't light because it's not, it's not the true way. The true way is free. It's by grace, isn't it? They're trying to work their way. No man can work their way into God's presence. There's other people who spend their lives maybe doing good things, philanthropical things, but they're spending them. They're working hard, and they're going to do this, and they're going to do that, and when they die, a lot of people praise them, and they have a big funeral, and they say, weren't they a wonderful person? But if they didn't plan for eternity, they have spent their lives. They may not have wasted them. They've done some good, but they've spent them. Um... So there's, there's those two wrong ways of living life. But then there is the righteous way. And that is, this is the Christian approach to life. The true righteous lifestyle is the one that invests, doesn't waste, doesn't spend, but invests his or her life for both the glory of God and the good of others. As we come to this current lesson now in Luke chapter 16, we find that there is no break in the setting of the Lord's three parables of Luke 15 and the three parables that we are going to be discussing not only today, but also Lord willing <clears throat> next week in not only Luke chapter 16, but we'll jump over into the first 10 verses of Luke 17. We're going to be looking. Isn't it funny? We ended the year with three parables and now we're going to be beginning the year with three parables. And these are the parables of the shrewd steward, which we will look at today. And then next week, we're going to be looking at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You want to be here for that one. That's where we go down into (laughs) Hades, you know, and talk about the two compartments of Hades, etc. And then also we'll speak about the parable of the unworthy slave. Now, the Pharisees and scribes to whom Jesus had been speaking back in 15, uh, verse 2, we already looked at that. Remember, they were murmuring about him receiving sinners and eating, and then he went ahead and spoke those three parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. Well, they're still here as he goes right now into chapter 16. So they still hear him speak the uh, at least the next two parables. But... It tells us in 16.1 that he also now addressed his disciples. Now, his disciples were there when he also spoke those Luke 15 parables, but he wasn't directly addressing them. Now he's directly addressing his disciples, and the Pharisees and scribes are also there listening to him. Um, So his parables, the next three parables, and, and the comments that he will make after some of those parables are going to serve to do two things. One, he will rebu- rebuke with those parables one group of men, and they, of course, are the religious rulers, and uh, he will talk to them about their wrong and their covetous attitude toward material wealth, mammon, money, and their also their self-justifying attitude about themselves. And with those very same words, with those very same parables and comments, not only will he rebuke one group of men, But he will be teaching another group of men, and who are they? His own disciples. So he's going to be teaching you and I, if you are a disciple, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are to, as we will look at this chapter, we are to understand that our lives are a stewardship for which we are held responsible. And one day, we are going to give an account for our lives and what we have done with them for the Lord. So we need to really seriously listen to what the Lord Jesus has to say in these next three parables about right and wrong stewardship. So let's, now that was the introduction. Let's look at the parable of the shrewd steward. And for this, we'll look at verses 1 to 13 of Luke chapter 16. It says, and he, of course, that he is Jesus, said also... So we know also means, you know, he's still speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. He said, also unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him, the rich man called his steward and said unto him, how is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship for thou mayest be no longer steward then the steward said within himself what shall I do for my lord taketh away from me the stewardship I cannot dig to beg I am ashamed I am resolved what to do the word resolved is in the Greek and it means I know what I'll do we all say that to ourselves don't we I know what I'll do that when I am put out of the stewardship they may receive me into their houses. That sounds confusing. He's saying, I know what I'll do so people will receive me after I'm fired. I know what I'll do. Verse 5. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, how much owest thou unto my Lord? And he, that first debtor, said, a hundred measures of oil. And he, the steward, said unto him, take thy bill and sit down quickly and write 50. So what did he do? He cut... The first debtor's bill in half. Then said he to another debtor, And how much owest thou? And he, the debtor, said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and write fourscore. He deducted his bill from a hundred measures of wheat down to eighty measures of wheat. And this is what shocked so many people. Verse eight And the Lord, that would be the, the certain rich man, commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I say unto you, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, unto you, who's the you? Directly addressing his disciples. So he says, and I say unto you men, you followers of me, make to yourselves friends of the mammon or the riches of unrighteousness, that when ye fail they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. It was customary back in Bible times, even all the way back to the book of Genesis, for a wealthy man to entrust his, the responsibilities and the oversight of his property and his finances and his goods to a trusted manager who was called a steward so as to relieve himself of a lot of the daily administration of his household affairs. Today, it, a steward might be comparable to, to maybe like a financial planner that you might have. Um, now, in Genesis, we find several examples of very faithful, trustworthy, godly stewards. One was a man named Eliezer, and he was a steward for, who knows, Abraham. Eliezer was a steward for Abraham. And then we had Joseph. You all know Joseph. Joseph, for a while, was the steward for a very rich Egyptian named Potiphar. Exactly. Well, the steward in this present account here in Luke 16. Was we find out right away, and it's funny that this—not funny, but this is God, the Holy Spirit working, of course—that it follows right on the tail uh, tales of the parable of the prodigal son, because we find out that just as in that previous parable, this steward wasted his master's goods, and doesn't that sound like the prodigal son who wasted his his inheritance in riotous living? He was, so this steward is what we could call a prodigal steward. So this could be the parable. <laughs> I'm having trouble speaking. I haven't spoken in four months in front of people, so I'm getting all my P's together. But we we could call him, this the parable of the prodigal steward, couldn't we? <laughs> and it it wasn't, we find out from the Greek verb tense there of uh, wasted, that it wasn't just a one-time wasting where he wasted his his uh, master's good, it was a uh, present tense continual wasting for quite some time, in other words. Perhaps the entire time he had been this rich man's steward, he had been uh, wasting the master's wealth. He had not been taking good care of his master's finances. Well, from the latter part of this account, we also find out that this continual waste was not due to a lack of skill in handling the master's affairs and goods. Because we're going to find out, well, we did, we already read that, what he did, he called the debtors and and cut their bills in half. He was clever, he was smart, he had skill. So this waste was not due to a lack of skill, it was due rather to what? A lack of Integrity, a lack of character. The man was called an unjust steward. He wasn't just careless in his wastefulness; he was somehow sinful in his wastefulness. And the the same Greek word for waste here is the word that was used in verse at chapter fifteen thirteen when we were told that the prodigal son wasted his substance with riotous living. Both that son, the younger son, and this steward had considerable wealth. We talked about how the prodigal's father was a very, very wealthy man. Well, this rich man here in this parable was also a very rich man. We see that just by the debts of some of the people that owed him money or, or goods, oil and wheat. Um, but both the, that son, the prodigal son and the steward had con, had considerably wasted that which had been entrusted to their case a care but in both cases they misused and wasted the goods through unsavory conduct both of them were guilt both of them were unjust the younger son we found out had no love or respect for his father and the steward we find out had no love or respect for his employer is the certain rich man and this was evidenced in both of them by the way that they mishandled their stewardship responsibilities but what does scripture say about sin it says be sure your sin will find you out numbers 3223 both the prodigal and the the prodigal son and the prodigal steward paid a price for their waste the prodigal found himself half starved in a pig pen And the steward found himself losing a very good employment position. What does scripture say is the most, and this is interesting because this morning in our leader's prayer time, um, Joyce Hayes read this verse and she hadn't even looked ahead to what we would be talking about. So it's amazing how the Lord works. But what is the most important characteristic a steward is to demonstrate? Faith, yes, loyalty, faithfulness. It, and that faithfulness and loyalty both include with them the concept of honesty, right? You wouldn't be called faithful if you were dishonest. So it includes the idea of honesty. 1 Corinthians 4.2, Joyce, says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Faithful, that's the most important characteristic. As Christians, we are to function as the managers of God's wealth. Here on Earth, all that he ha- all that he has really, all he has entrusted to us, we are to realize, and I would assume we all do realize, that we we came here with nothing. We came into this world naked, didn't we? Came with absolutely nothing, and we are going to leave with absolutely nothing. At least, nothing physical. Anything we leave with has to be laid up ahead, and you know, stored up in heaven, treasures in heaven. But everything that we are now privileged to use and to enjoy belongs to the Lord God, and we are responsible to invest it, not waste it, not spend it. We are responsible to invest it wisely for the eternal good of other people and for the glory of God. It's interesting to notice that the certain rich man of this account, account did not learn of his steward's waste management by his own investigation. He didn't start investigating his steward. He was apparently either off on a journey, and there are other parables the Lord gives us where there's a certain king who's off on a journey and his steward or servant, you know, goofs off while he's gone. Some are faithful, some are, um, maybe he was gone for a while, or maybe he was just so incredibly rich that he didn't notice the squandering of his goods or the embezzlement of his goods or the slow but steady siphoning off of his own goods, um... I don't know. He he didn't he didn't under he didn't he was not the one who found out about the steward. He was squealed on. We are told that there was someone who brought accusation against the steward. Now it's interesting, and that's in verse one. Haven't got past verse one yet. (laughs) But the Greek word for the Greek root of the word accusation, the word accused is the Greek word diavolos. It has, at, it, accusation has as its root word, the word devil. Well, that makes sense. You know what the name devil means? The accuser. He's the accuser of the brethren. Um, so the word implies malice, even if the accusation is true. And in this case, the accusation was true. But the one who brought the accusation to the certain rich man was accusing the steward maliciously. In other words, the steward had an enemy out there who did not like him. Now, to this point in the parable, we find a great similarity to the situation with each and every one of us. So it's really no wonder that the Lord also was speaking to his own disciples. Like them... We are the stewards of all that God has entrusted to us, as I just said, and yet, what do we do? Oh my, just think about it. Just think about your past week. We continuously waste so much of that which is entrusted to us, so much of our master's goods. We waste the treasures, the time, the talents that he expects us to invest for his glory don't we each and every day don't we waste time doing things that don't matter don't count and remember too it's just our reasonable service isn't it as Romans 1 uh, 12 1 says just our reasonable service to him to invest for him as we it's scripture says that as we have received the gift of the manifold grace of God so are we to be stewards of that grace We've received the, the many-faceted grace of, much-faceted grace of God. His grace comes in all different flavors, manifold grace. If we, if you're a Christian, you're you're born again. Um, you have received the manifold grace of God. It's a gift. And we're to be doing what? Investing it, sharing it with others. And if we're not, we're we're robbing God. We're wasting. We're spending. We're doing all kinds of other things than what we should We should be investing. We are to be, Joyce also mentioned this this morning, we are to be stewards of the mysteries of God, 1 Corinthians 4.1. We are to be faithful and wise stewards, even and particularly during the time of the Master's absence from us. Right now, the certain rich man, the king, the Master has gone on a journey. He's not with us, but while he's gone, we are to remain Faithful. And we are to be wise stewards of all that he has entrusted to our care. And who is it that is out there making sure that a man or a woman's sins are brought before the attention of the Lord? Oh, look what she did. She just really wasted. She just really spent. She just really goofed off. She's unjust. Who is it? We have an enemy out there, don't we? The accuser of the brethren, and he is always (laughs) reporting on us. Well, the mismanagement of the master's goods was to lead to the stewards dismissal definite he was gonna he was he was fired and and when he appeared before the master he was told to give an account of his stewardship in other words he was to go back and get the account books and bring them to the office he was going to definitely lose his position of great responsibility it was going to be given to another yet he still had a small window of opportunity to act. You see, his dismissal was inevitable, but it was not yet made public and it was not yet finalized. So he had this small window, you know, you're going to be fired, it's a sure thing, go get the books, you know, give an account. So in that little space of time, he had this window of opportunity. Nobody would know that he had already been basically fired. And notice that um, the steward did not did not deny his waste. He didn't say, oh, no, no, I wasn't wasteful and g- give some kind of an excuse because uh, he truly was guilty. And this show, his silence is evidence that he was guilty. But neither, sad to say, neither did the man admit his guilt, his sin, and ask for mercy as did the prodigal son in the previous parable you know remember when the prodigal son was in the pigsty and he finally got around to thinking seriously about his situation it said he came to himself finally it took the boy a long time but he finally came to himself however uh, this man didn't you know he he didn't um, he didn't ask for mercy but until the account was rendered this steward did have some time to think through his situation and come up with a plan to secure his own future and this is where his worldly wisdom or his shrewdness came into play where it is revealed and it is the only thing for which this steward is commended in this whole parable is his worldly wisdom his shrewdness and we're going to talk about that in a minute but um, so he had this moment of opportunity and he seized it notice in verse 3 that the soon-to-be unemployed steward like the prodigal son of the pigsty spoke to himself and that's in verses um, hmm, wherever it is I've got, I've got the wrong verses up here but he spoke to himself and in what he said to himself in his thoughts we see right away that he was unwilling to change as just mentioned he could have right then when he was brought in before his master he could have repented of his sinful uh, selfishness and his dishonesty. We imagine that some of this money he was siphoning and putting into his own pockets. He could have asked his master to forgive him. He could have gotten down on his knees and begged for mercy. He could have, like the prodigal son, have thought to himself, I'm gonna go before my master and I'm gonna say, Master, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy steward. Make me as one of thy hired servants out in one of your fields. I will dig for you. Remember, isn't that basically what the prodigal son said to his father? You know, just make me, I know I'm not worthy to be your son, make me as one of your uh, field laborers. And this would have been the man's best choice. This is what he should have done. But instead, he quickly dismissed the idea of hard manual labor. He said, I cannot dig. And because there is absolutely no indication that the man had uh, some kind of a physical problem, I mean, you know, we could give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he was crippled or old and he couldn't dig. But most of the commentators—well, actually, I never found one that said otherwise— say that it wasn't the case that he couldn't physically dig, dig. It was just that he was not willing to be demoted to such a position as a common field laborer and to serve in such a low position because of his pride. He cannot dig because he would not dig. It was beneath his dignity. And he also was probably just plain lazy. He was used to working with his mind, and he didn't want to work with his brawn. Now, the second option he hurriedly dismissed was to become a beggar. He was too proud to beg. He said, I cannot dig, and I, uh, where am I? Verse 3, the end of verse 3, I cannot dig, and to beg, I am ashamed. He was too proud, in other words, to beg which is already proven by the fact that he would not beg his master's forgiveness or beg to be put in some kind of a lower position of employment he said he would be too ashamed to beg and yet isn't it ironic that he wasn't too ashamed to waste his master's goods and he wasn't too ashamed to run out and rob his master even further of what was rightfully due him when he reduced those IOUs of the master's debtors. So, so the prodigal steward rejected both work and welfare as alternative solutions to his problem. Instead, this worldly wise steward appraised the situation that threatened his security and removed, uh, moved quickly to situate himself to a better advantage for his future. While he went out and got all his account books together for examination, he was going to still exercise his authority as steward. They said sometimes the steward would even entrust, I mean the rich person would even entrust to his steward the signet ring. You know, which would show their, like their signature. So this steward probably still had the ring. He still had the authority of his master to go out and, and do business. So he was going to gain some valuable friends so that when he was out on the streets, when he was unemployed, these newly made friends would provide for him. Now remember no one else would want to hire this man as steward once he, once word had been made public you know once he had been fired for his unjust behavior nobody else would want to hire him so he was going to use the old reciprocity ethic you know what the reciprocity ethic is you scratch my back I'll scratch yours here he he, he reversed it he says I'll scratch your back but I'll expect you to scratch mine. His simple plan was to call in everyone. Notice it says uh, all, every one of his master's debtors, one by one. And while he still had the legal authority to to act as the estate manager, he greatly reduced their debts, which by the two examples that are given to us, which were for 100 measures of oil, which is 868 gallons of oil, and a hundred measures of wheat, which today would be 1,083 bushels, by just these two examples given to us, we know that these were not just petty little debts. These were large business debts. And this tells us that this certain rich man was indeed certainly rich. (laughs) He was a very wealthy man. And by the way, I owe you debts. Notice the steward had the person, the debtor, write out the new bill. He, in fact in verse uh, 6 he says take thy bill and sit down quickly hurry up hurry up we don't have much time <laughs> quickly and write 50 but IOUs were written in the debtor's hand and this was uh, so that it would discourage falsification and that makes sense you know it, the the one the rich man could write out IOUs all day but it you know, had to be in the hand of the debtor and then and then the the steward would stamp it. But anyway, that's why they had to write out the IOU, not him. Well, anyway, the steward in this account had no doubt whatsoever in his mind that he was going to be fired. Judgment had been passed already. He was merely awaiting its fulfillment. He knew that his account records would not save him because he was guilty indeed he would lose his position as steward and no one else as i said would hire him in a position of great responsibility again so his options were either hard labor or begging which he refused to do however through this clever scheme of his he had now befriended himself to all of his master's debtors so that they would feel obligated, as I said, to scratch his back. You know, they would feel obligated to help him out, perhaps by providing him with places to live in their own homes and with money to aid him in his needs, in his uh, time of needs. So it was a very, you know, he said, I can't dig and I won't beg, but I can rig I can rig up a plan. And he did. It was a very clever move on his part. And now it's, it's funny because as I was reading about this parable, commentator after commentator said this is a hard parable. Some even said this is the, the most difficult parable of all the Lord's parables for us to understand. One book even said that this is probably the most difficult verse in all of Scripture. And when I first read it, I thought, yeah, it is really hard, you know. Um, And what seems to be shocking is verse 8. The most shocking aspect of this parable to most people is uh, it comes in the master's response when he finds out what his steward has done. Even though the master has been cheated out of debts, big debts that were rightly owed to him, what does he do? He commends Look at verse 8. He commands the unjust steward because he had done wisely. And if you think about that for a while, you say, hey, that doesn't make sense. Why would a certain rich man commend someone who had, done, who had done this? He was an unjust steward, and yet he's commended for doing wisely. Well, the unjust part speaks of his, his character the doing wisely part speaks of his action. You know, there's a lot of unrighteous, unjust people out there who can do wise things in planning for their future. But something very important that we need to understand when we look at this parable and interpret it is that the Greek word which is used for wisely there in verse 8 is thronimos. Everybody say that. <laughs> You'll be hearing me say it a lot during this lesson. And it speaks of having acted prudently, worldly, wisely, and the best word probably is shrewdly. He is commended for having acted shrewdly or prudently with practical wisdom. And we notice right away... How this word is then immediately connected with the wisdom of the worldly in the very same verse. Look at the end of that verse. Uh, it says, um, for the children of this world are in their generation wiser, fronimos, than the children of light. I can be very, very self-centered. And sometimes I am. <laughs> Uh, I can be very self, uh, a very self-centered, dishonest person and yet do something very wise to secure for my own best interests, right? A lot of people out in the world doing that. They do wise things. They're unjust, but they do wise things to secure their own future, at least their future here in this world. But in contrast to that word phronimos, the Greek word that is used for the wisdom of God, such as in Romans 16, 27, where it speaks of God, the only wise God, and the Greek word that is used for the prophets and other wise men of God, in Matthew 23, 34, and the Greek word that is used to speak of believers with, uh, who are endowed with spiritual and practical wisdom, such as in Romans 1619, is not the word phronimos. The Greek word that is used to speak of godly wisdom is sophos. Sophia means wisdom. comes from the word sophos. And the word, did I tell you the word used here is phronimos. It is the practical shrewd uh, wisdom of the world. And also notice that the master did not say that he was pleased by his unjust steward's actions. You know, he himself, as I said, had been cheated of a great deal of goods, Um, but but the rich man was, he wasn't pleased with that, but he was impressed by his shrewdness, by the man's cleverness, in having used his moment of opportunity, his window of opportunity, before his open public dismissal, uh, with a view to securing his own future. It was, In fact, it was probably this, this shrewdness, this worldly wise practicality of mind that had attracted the master, the certain rich man, to hire or appoint the steward to his position of authority in the first place. And uh, probably it was that shrewdness of mind that had enabled that steward to get away for so long in cheating his master of his goods, you know, without getting caught. The big problem was that the man's shrewdness was not coupled with integrity of character. Yet he did prove prudent in that when he saw, foresaw danger ahead, you know, he was going to have to give an account He was going to lose his position. When he saw that danger, he precautions to offset that danger. It wasn't his fraud that was being praised. It was his new fervency to use his opportunity... And we saw the fervency in that he said, quickly write out a new IOU. And it was his foresight to act decisively in his present moment to position himself for the future. That's phronimos wise to do. But if a person hasn't also planned for his eternal future, he isn't sophos-wise at all. And isn't this what we heard the Lord say to that rich farmer who wanted to build bigger and better barns, you know, to put his big crops in? He said, you know, this night, thou fool, this night you're solely. That man was phronimos wise in that he was planning for his own future, his retirement. He had practical shrewd wisdom, but he wasn't sophos-wise at all, was he? Because he didn't plan for his eternal future, so he was called by God a fool. You see, you can be, uh, you can be a phronimos fool, but not a sophos fool. All right, you're all. <laughs> now, this the steward in this story is not a hero. Okay, he's not a hero at all. He's not someone we want to follow as our example for character. He was unjust. He was wasteful. He was dishonest. He was self-centered. We don't want to follow his character at all. Um, he might have been clever, but he, he, he lacked character. He was resourceful, but he was not regenerate. He didn't display shrewdness in his use of opportunity once he learned his doom was inevitable. So what this really is is a good example from a bad—I mean, it's a good—excuse me. It's a good lesson from a bad example. And we can have those. We can have good lessons from bad examples. Sometimes we learn a whole lot. Like when we look at the the life of Lot, bad example, but we learned a lot of good lessons. Well, next we find Jesus applying the parable to his disciples. And that's where he says, and I say unto you. Now, of course, his disciples had to live with unbelievers in the world. First, he's telling them here, he's applying this parable, applying it. Applying a parable is always important. He says, they should use money wisely. Mammon can speak of, you know, wealth, money, riches. They should use money wisely to win people into the kingdom. Christians, remember, he has told us somewhere else in the Gospels, are to be wise as what? Serpents. Gentle as doves, but we're to be. We're to have that element of phronimos wisdom in us, too. We should have both kinds of wisdom. We should have thronimos, practical, shrewd wisdom, to deal with the world. And we should have sophos wisdom, godly wisdom, to also deal with the world and with our eternal futures. And anyway, uh, we're to be wise as serpents in using our stewardship opportunities. And this is the idea that the Lord elaborating, elaborated on when he went on to say that the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Aren't you glad he put in those words are in their generation. What if it had just said, the children of this world are wiser than the children of light? That wouldn't sound too good for us, would it? I know we're into dumb sheep, but we, I don't think we would like that. But he put in, the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. There are two groups in this comparison, right? There's the children of the world. And there are the children of light. And here is where Jesus set his disciples and all of his other followers apart from this dishonest steward. The children of this world speaks of the natural, unsaved, unregenerate man, such as the steward. They're experts. They're experts at skillfully, prudently, um, shrewdly using opportunities to make money. And to make friends in order to plan for their earthly futures. They are the children of this world. They're the children of this world only. And they are merely wiser in their generation. In other words, they're only wiser during their current time of existence. Their 70 to 100 years, you know, their generation, their time here on earth. They are certainly not wiser for eternity. So Jesus was not comparing these two groups, the children of the world and the children of light, as far as their wisdom in what they thought about God and what they thought about him, the Messiah, and what they thought about the word of God. He was comparing them instead to how they act in their own sphere of profession, in their own... um, their own current world um the people in their circle of influence and and the the interests that they have in their generation obviously the children of this world who walk in spiritual darkness do not think better than christians the children of light with regard to their own eternal souls but the world does sadly oftentimes um Go about their their earthly concerns in in more practical, shrewdly ways than we Christians go about our spiritual concerns. Do you understand what I'm saying? They're often a lot better. They they um, they can outpace believers in their ingenuity and in their cleverness and in their creativeness to use opportunities. You know they're. And, and this, is, this is where we're being rebuked here. Um, they often have greater vision, and they'll even take sometimes greater risks for their own futures than, than you and I will. They are often more disciplined to study their world, to see prospective openings to advance their causes, and, and, to, and to seize those opportunities knowing that opportunities missed are opportunities lost and and the children of this world certainly seem to creatively think of ways to use money to advance their causes that perhaps we Christians could learn some lessons from they, i think of a man like George Soros and how he uses his money to further his cause which is a bad cause you know we need to be using our money wisely to advance God's causes well, I suppose I could rightly say that new opportunities to be better managers of our master's, master's estate pass each of us by every single day. You know, I probably pass by somebody every single day who I should witness to or give a track to and, and, and be a, a better steward with. And yet how many of us go on, you know, day after day as though we plan to be on planet Earth forever we've been warned ahead of time just like this steward we have been warned ahead of time that we are going to give an account haven't we and we need to be just the, the example of the steward is that we need to be just as fervent and just as foresightful as he was and quickly using we don't know like Betty Reen. she didn't know a week ago that she would be being called home to the Lord maybe within a day or so now Um, we need to be looking at every day like it could be the last and, you know, fervently about our, our Father's business and being good stewards, faithful and wise, stewards of all that he has entrusted to us. And remember what has he entrusted us with? The manifold grace of God. The gospel message far more important. You know, those are the true riches. And we should be sharing them. Anyway. The parable of the shrewd steward was used by the Lord Jesus to illustrate this greater truth. In effect, he said that since the children of this world are so wise in their generation, even despite their deceit and their self-centered interests and their dishonesty, uh, he said if they're so wise, how much wiser should the children of light be as we face the reality of eternity? And not just one generation, but eternal generations wealth should and I'm not saying wealth in that you know we have to be rich to, to be listening to this we all have wealth compared to the rest of the world but whatever we do have is you know our wealth and our time our talents our, our spiritual gifts all that we have should be a um, and especially wealth should be a disciples servant we should use what we have as our servant we should not become the servant to it the Lord's men were to use their wealth and all that the Lord was going to be entrusting to him. Because in our life of Christ's study, we're only weeks away from his crucifixion. After we finish these parables, we're going to be moving on to the resurrection of Lazarus. So we're just within weeks of the crucifixion. He would soon be entrusting. He was the rich king who was going to be going on a journey, and everything was going to be entrusted to their care, and they needed to be good stewards of all he was giving to them. And so they were to use wealth, you know, those love offerings that would come in as their servant in order to gain friends. You know, the same reason the steward used the rich man's wealth once he found out, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to lose my job, and he ran out and made a bunch of friends, scratched their back so they would scratch his. He's saying, you disciples need to use whatever you get to make friends so that when you get to heaven don't you want when you get to heaven to have all kinds of friends all kinds of people we've never yet met in other countries who were brought to the Lord because of money we gave in our church you know to missionaries or to use what we have to make friends in heaven I don't want to be up there all by myself rejoicing that I'm there but I didn't bring anybody with me I didn't help to bring other people here so that's what he's saying you know use your money to gain friends God's people are to use money in such a way that it is our friend and not our enemy. It is to be used to help in good ways so that when we fail... And look at this in verse 9. See that? Probably when I read it, you thought, "Mm, I wonder what that meant. It says, make of yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. In other words, make money your friend so that when ye fail... Now, the Greek word used there for fail is eclipse. In other words, so that when you die... Is what he's saying. You may have, you know, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Big deal. The steward had some homes to go into for his generation, for the rest of his years. He'd have friends open his doors. But he's saying, you know, you disciples, you make friends so that you'll have everlasting habitations to dwell. You know, Jesus is in heaven right now preparing dwelling places for each and every one of us, right? Right. So we're all going to have dwelling places. Now when I get to heaven, I want all of you to open your homes, your dwelling places to me. So we'll all have a lot of earthly habitations. And that's exciting to think about. We don't have to just stay in our own mansion. That'll be fun and by itself. (laughs) But I can go to all your mansions too. I get so excited, I just want to get a busload and go. But Jesus' second application is that if one is faithful in his use of money, he can be trusted with even greater things. The true riches. People who are unfaithful in the way that they use their money are also in, uh, uh, unfaithful in the way that they use the true riches of God's kingdom. You know, I don't know if you have realized this by looking at the world scene and what's going on in the world today. I would love to just get into prophecy, but a lot of things are happening to tell us that time is growing very short. And radical times require radical actions. The Lord is not, and he has never really called us to business as usual. But I think that as we grow closer to his return, we need to be more clever, more shrewd, more like the steward in a lot of ways thinking of all kinds of different ways that we can reach more people before the lord does come those poor people that don't go in the rapture are going to have to live through that horrible horrible time of tribulation i oh just unbelievable What well, we should be asking ourselves in these last days how we can maximize Our money, what we have, our treasures, not just our money, but our talents. Each of you have talents. Each of you have spiritual gifts. Each of you have time. You know, that's one thing where we're all equal. I don't know anybody who has more than 24 hours a day. Do you? We're all equal. We should be maximizing all that we have for eternity, using it the best way we can. And this means that we are not to um, spend or even give carelessly or um just maybe sentimentally or impulsively now a lot of silly women will listen to preachers on television and send in thousands of dollars to some goof off who just runs off with it right i mean we need to be clever we need to be shrewd uh we need to give wisely <laughs> we are to be clear-eyed forward-looking astute people again wise as serpents Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Little things are the school of life. I like that. Little things are the school of life. You know, Hudson Taylor, who was that great missionary that went to China, once said, A little thing is a little thing, but faithfulness in a little thing is a very great thing. So whatever you're involved in, maybe you think, oh, it's just a little thing. I'll just teach a little Sunday school class, or I just teach a little Bible study, or I just am ministering to my neighbor. But a little thing, faithfulness in a little thing is a very great thing. Remember what the greatest characteristic of a steward is? Faithfulness. Be faithful. One of the wonderful promises of God to his good and faithful servants is that because they proved faithful in a very little, he will trust them with authority and rulership over many things. Where? In the next life. And even maybe in this life. If you prove to be faithful in little things, he'll trust you with more and more and more and greater things. The believer cheats God if he is not wisely investing his divinely given talents, his treasures, his time, and is instead squandering them away. You know, if he uh, doesn't invest his time in other people's lives, if he doesn't give to ministries that seek to win the lost, uh, if he doesn't use his spiritual gifts... To build up others in the body of, of Christ, if he wastes his talents for his own self glory, if he spends his life just for himself. You know, sad to say, there's a lot of Christians who are just enjoying their life, just spending it on themselves. You know, not only can an unbeliever be a waster and a spender, but Christians can be wasters and spenders. And I, you know, we know a lot of people. Who waste? Their, they're born again, but they're wasting their lives. They're not building up any treasure in heaven. They're not really helping anybody else. They're just living selfishly for themselves. They enjoy their creature comforts and, and their pleasures and their ease. What they really say is, I cannot dig. I can't dig. I, you know, just to know that I'm saved is enough. I can't dig. I don't want to get, dig into the Word of God and get any deeper into the meat of the Word of God. I can't because I'm lazy and I don't want to. That's what they're basically saying. Well, as the Lord had said early in his ministry in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm not going to get much into that where he says uh, no man can serve both God and money because we've already talked about that, but they are two mutually exclusive servants. And you can't be a bond servant. You can't be a slave to two masters at the same time. Love for money will drive a person away from God. And conversely, loving God will cause one to, to make not make money his primary concern in this life. The disciple of Christ is to be single-mindedly focused and devoted to him. If God is our master, money will be our servant. But if God is not our master, we will become the servants of money. And I've got news for you. Money is not a kind master it's not a kind master and you don't want to be its servant well our time is out and I only got halfway through the first half of the two part study (laughs) but um, I'll just try to pick up from here and we'll see how far we get next week I had told you to only go through question number 8 but Mercedes could you look really quickly since I didn't get past verse 13 and tell us Six? You've already done it. All right. Just now you've got an even even easier week. You only have to do the first six questions on your homework page, okay? All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your patience. Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you for um, these women who are evidencing by the fact that they are here that that they're not saying I cannot dig. They want to dig. They want to dig deeper into the Word of God, into the meat, and to... um, and to to get to know you better through this study of, of your life, Jesus, every word and every work you ever did and said, and, and we know that this causes us to to see ourselves reflected in your image, and and to hopefully make us, want to conform more into your image. Father, I pray that as we leave here, each and every one of us will will take a long hard look at our own lives as they currently stand and honestly evaluate where it is that we can make more effective investments for eternity, how we can wisely use the wealth and the health and the spiritual gifts and and the talents and the abilities and the resources and the knowledge that you have entrusted to us and the time and the opportunities that come our way so that we might please and glorify you and one day hear you say to each of us well done thou good and faithful servant thou has been faithful over a few things i will make thee ruler over many things enter thou into the joy of the lord and i pray you go with each one lord uh, give her safety and put a hedge of protection around her and her family and keep her from the accuser satan who would just love to destroy and devour her and, and her beloved. Lord, we love you and we pray in your name. Amen. God bless you.